Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. Again, that's Acts 23, starting at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one, that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Val. Good morning again, everyone. Uh, welcome to Holy Trinity Church. I am Sully. I'm one of the pastors, and it's always a good day when we get to be together and to open God's Word with each other. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning about something that's uh, pretty hard to come by these days. Uh, it's the sense of stability. 
There's a, an acronym used in, I think, military context, VUCA, V-U-C-A. And it's used to describe uh, really challenging circumstances. It's V stands for volatile, U stands for uncertain, C stands for complex, and uh, the A stands for ambiguous. It's been used now in a lot of business leadership contexts as well. How, how do you lead through a time that's volatile or uh, circumstances that are uncertain and ambiguous? I can't think of four better words to describe the last 18 months or so that we've all endured together. And so I think it's fair to say, or fair to ask you, uh, how are you finding stability these days? Uh, earlier today, Rich and Laura in their prayer mentioned a few things that happened in the world this last week. Uh, the land, the earth literally shook in Haiti this past week when a 7.2 magnitude earthquake rocked that island. The earthquake killed over, over 2,000 people. I wrote in my notes earlier in the week that the number at that point was around 1,200. Now it's over 2,000. Then there were the images of people trying to flee the country of Afghanistan, the airport being overrun uh, with people trying to get on flights as the government in Afghanistan was crumbling. Not that you needed reminding, uh, but we live in an unstable world. The last year has sort of been like a cultural earthquake, and it's left us, it's had this destabilizing effect on us. I, I think that our resiliency has become thinner. We, before 2020, I think that when we had a bad day or a difficult circumstance, it, it might have knocked us off our, our balance for a, you know, a little bit, but we were able to bounce back pretty quickly. Now it just takes you know, the wind blowing in the wrong direction to lay us flat. And to our, I think our resiliency has become thinner and thinner. Today, I, I have a good news for those of us who are feeling maybe a little destabilized, a, a few of us who are feeling a little fragile. I believe what our text today wants to show us is that we have a God who can bring surprising stability to those who suffer. There's this interesting irony woven throughout our entire text today. Uh, this irony that Paul, uh, the one in our text who uh, seems the least in control, is the one who has the most certainty about his future. The one who seems to be the most powerless in our text uh, seems to be the one who is least threatened. The one who trusts in God is the one who experiences the most stability. What God does for Paul in this text, it shows us just how incredible, how, how God can bring about surprising stability to his suffering servants. So I want to encourage you today with this text. I, I want to ask the Lord for his help in doing so. Uh, so before we get into it, would you join me in a word of prayer? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, uh, we greet you this morning with joy that we can come and gather together and lift our voices in uh, thanksgiving and, and worship. But Father, uh, if we're honest, many of us feel like ships being tossed back and forth in a storm. We long for a steady place to stand. So Lord, this morning we look to you, our firm foundation, our refuge from the storm. May your word this morning show us how superior the stability that you offer is. We look to you for safety, O oh Lord. And so, Father, I come before you and I, I, bring, I bring before us what I have prepared, but Father, I ask and I trust that you will show us what it is that we need to see and hear today. So I pray all of this in our Savior's name. Amen. There's a favorite children's book in our home. It was a, a book I read when I was a kid. Uh, it's the classic little book called The Little Engine That Could. Uh, and it's the story of a train that was full of toys and good things for children on the other side of a mountain. 
But the problem in the story is that the train en train's engine breaks down. And so the toys in the train begin to ask around for another engine to get them over the mountain. And they keep asking, and people, the other trains, seem to be either too important or too tired to help out. Until the little engine, the little blue engine, comes along and agrees to help. And so she attaches herself to the train cars and begins up the side of the mountain. And as she goes, she says to herself, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And we all know how the story goes. She reaches the top of the mountain, and the toys rejoice and celebrate. And as they go down the side of the, the mountain, the other side, she says to herself, I thought I could, I thought I could, I thought I could. It's a nice little story about a, a train that saves the day. I think sometimes when things get chaotic and things become uncertain for us, we, we like to take on the persona of the little engine that could. We grit our teeth and we begin to take on the mountain, even though it may be incredibly clear that we can't make it up ourselves. We think that it's maybe either by our sheer might and power or our intellect, uh, our planning, that we'll be able to make it on our own. And yet at some point up the side of the mountain, uh, we break. We realize that we aren't strong enough, that we can't provide stability for ourselves. And so we begin looking out. We look outside of ourselves for strength and stability. The Apostle Paul, he's in a sort of a situation like that today. We meet him while he's in jail. What's led up to this? Let me recap for a moment. He's arrived in the city of Jerusalem. He knows that the Lord wants him in this city, and yet terrible things continue to happen for him. Things go from bad to worse. Uh, he was arrived in Jerusalem, and he was wrongly accused of trying to desecrate the temple by the Jews. He was then beat up by them only to be arrested by the Roman guards. The, Rome, the local Roman leader, called the Tribune in our text today, uh, ordered him to be flogged. And it only stopped when he realized that he was a Roman citizen. The Tribune took Paul back to this council of Jewish leaders, only for another riot to ensue. And so finally, he's just locked away. He's put in prison until things could be sorted out. Paul's situation could easily be described as volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And it's at this low moment that we meet Paul, alone in a jail cell. I want to look back here at what happens right before the text we just read a few moments ago. In the middle of the night, in the moment when Paul was probably most likely to be tempted with discouragement and depression and loneliness, the Lord shows up and stands by him. Look at verse uh, 11 of chapter 23. This is what the Lord says. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Here is Paul on the ground, probably tossing and turning, unable to sleep, and the Lord stands by him and says both a imperative and a promise. He says, Take courage, Paul. Because just as you have testified to me here in Jerusalem, so I will have you testify to me in Rome. He tells him a command, but he also gives him this promise that this jail cell that he finds himself in isn't going to be his final destination. The Lord tells Paul that, that he is going to go on and continue to testify. What the Lord does in our text then today is that it shows Paul how he can use extraordinary means to preserve Paul's life. I want to give you actually two specific ways that the Lord can bring about surprising stability to his suffering servants. The first thing I want to show you is that God can use the weakest of things 
to make us strong. To say it another way, uh, God can use the smallest of things to stabilize us in the greatest of storms. Let me show you how he does this for Paul. The day after the Lord appeared to him, stood by him and called him to take courage, things intensify for Paul. Look at verse 11, or look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. When I feel stressed out, when I feel overwhelmed, a pretty natural way for me to respond is to make a plan. I sense my anxiety go down when I make a plan uh, that I know I'm going to have a a time to get everything done that I need to get done, or at least I have a plan to address the problem that's facing me. My anxiety level and stress goes down. The Jews here, they, they feel threatened by Paul and his message. If what Paul proclaimed was true, then their whole world would be turned upside down. If the gospel that Paul preached was true, well, their whole view of the world and of themselves would would have to be changed. I think it's common that when we feel our world being shaken and threatened and things become uncertain, unstable, we try to take control by creating a plan. How are we going to fix this? Well, the plan that the Jews come up with is to kill Paul. They come up with this plan that that gets rid of their problem. If Paul is their problem, if they get rid of Paul, the problem goes away. That's the way they think. And their plan is, I mean, it's, it's simple, but it's also a little bit elaborate. It says that over 40 of them are involved in the planning. Even the uh, highest echelons of leadership in the Jewish community are involved in this scheme, this plot to kill Paul. They come together and they bind them, they're bound by this oath that they make, not to taste food or take a drink until they've killed Paul. They tell the council of Jewish leaders to tell the tribune, the Roman ruler, to bring back Paul and they'll decide his case more exactly, and on the way, they will be waiting in to ambush him and to kill him. The tension in our text, is, text has multiple layers to it. Uh, uh, the first layer of tension is that Paul's life is in danger. Pretty, pretty clear. There's a, an angry mob that wants him dead, and they've come up with a plan to kill him. But it's not just Paul's life that is at stake. Another layer of tension in our text is that what's also at stake is the reliability of God's promises. It, that what we just read a few moments ago about what God said to Paul in his prison cell. He tells Paul, you're, gonna, you're not going to be finished here in Jerusalem. You're actually going to go on to Rome. And so if Paul is killed, well, there's no reason to trust God's promises. If God can't keep his word, then why should we trust him? The question then becomes, can God preserve Paul's life? Look with me at how he does this in the most surprising of ways. Picking up in verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, 
as though they are going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. This is the only time in, in the Bible where we're really given a glimpse into Paul's family a little bit with finding out that he has a sister, and his sister has a son. Paul's nephew, and we're not really given anything else. It's kind of, uh, a lot of questions arise. Were they, were they a part of the higher echelons of Jewish leadership? Were, were they Christ followers? What are their names? We're given none of that. We're not even told how it is that Paul's nephew was able to get into the barracks and, and be able to get a hold of Paul. But what we are told is that God uses this young little boy to save Paul's life. The boy gets access to Paul and he tells him about the plot. And Paul gets a guard and the guard takes the young man and and takes him over to the tribune. And it's through the mouth of this young little boy that the tribune finds out about the plot. God uses this young nephew of Paul to thwart the plan of an entire community. God uses the most menial of things to just show how powerful he is and how weak the enemy is. There is no plan, no plan that stands against God that can ultimately prevail. No scheme of the enemy against you that is too great for God not to stop. Paul understood this. Paul knew how God worked. He knew that that God often uses the weakest of things to accomplish his purposes so that we might know how strong he is and how weak the enemy is. He actually wrote to the church in Corinth uh, very clearly about this. He says that, that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has no rival. Thus, it's foolish for us to rely on anything but God to preserve our life. It's foolish to reach out to anything else to give us a sense of stability than God himself. You may feel as if life is is like a rushing river and you're being drifted along, pulling underneath the current occasionally, and you have no hope of finding stability. And yet you see this little twig sticking off the side of the bank of the river, a twig that looks dead, and you reach out for it. And you take hold of it, and to your surprise, it doesn't snap in half. Its little roots that are connected to the ground don't rip out. God doesn't need a boulder or a tree trunk to try to bring stability to your life. No one but God can do so much with so little. So let me just try to apply this to us today for just a moment. Next time that you're feeling a little stressed, a little unstable, to feeling as if the, the events of this world are throwing you off kilter, before you go off and try to put a plan to paper, before you try to take it on yourself, before your anxiety causes you to lash out in fear and anger, might you consider the promise of God and the power of God to bring stability to your life. Remember that God is a superior source of stability than any plan that you could ever come up with. When you feel as if there is no solid ground to stand on, remember that God can create one. When it feels as if you are in need of a refuge from the the scorching heat and trials of the sun, remember that it's 
that you serve a God who created a plant that came out of nowhere to provide shade for the prophet Jonah. When you feel as if the, the waters of, the life, of life are rising up and beginning to come up over your head, remember that we serve a God who created the waters to be firm ground so that Christ could walk upon them. We have a, a miracle-working God, a God who can use the smallest of things, the weakest of things, to bring stability to your life. Some will trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. So Holy Trinity Church, remember that God uses the weakest of things to make us strong. But the good news doesn't stop there. I want to tell you a second thing, a second way that God can bring about surprising stability to your life. The second thing here is that God can use, the, use what is, seems bad in your life for your good. What I mean is that God is so sovereign and so good that he can even redeem the evil and the injustice done toward you for good. What was intended to destabilize you, God can actually use to bring about stability in your life. Allow me to explain using the text in front of us. There's a shift that happens here. We move in the text from talking about how the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day, were responding to this threat of Paul and his message to how the civic leader the local Roman leader, the tribune, responds to Paul. And there's an interesting comparison we can make between these leaders. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, well, they, they respond to this threat of Paul and his message by creating a plan to kill him. Uh, they lash out in, in violence. But here the tribune, on the other hand, turns to a, a display of power. Both the religious leaders and the civic leader, they both respond in a way that relies on their own abilities to bring order to the chaos of the world rather than leaning into the Lord to bring stability. The local Roman leader here, he really only cares about preserving the peace of this far-flung corner of the Roman Empire. He doesn't really grasp why the religious leaders are so up in arms over Paul. He doesn't get the message that Paul is preaching. He is more so confused by it. He doesn't think Paul's done anything to deserve death or imprisonment, but, but he hears about this, this plot to kill Paul. And he concludes that Paul is, well, he's trouble enough that he must be gotten rid of. And so he begins to create his own plan. But in this instance, he's going to use his own authority and power to get rid of Paul. Look specifically with me at how he responds to this threat against Paul. Picking up in verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearsmen to go as far as Caesarea. At the third hour of the night, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. In, instead of preparing plans for his next missionary journey, Paul is imprisoned and he's watching as the amount of guards around him continue to increase. <laughs> There's this sense of which he's not sure of when he's ever going to get out and it just seems to only be getting worse for him. That, that there is incredibly a large number of guards now surrounding him. He isn't sure of when he's going to be released, and he's taken by an incredible amount of soldiers to the governor. He's being taken from this local little, little leader to an even greater leader. The potential of getting greater trouble is only increasing for him. Yet the 400 Roman soldiers that, that are called upon to 
accompany Paul. Well, this is, this is kind of a ridiculous number of guards. This is an unprecedented number of guards being called upon. It would have been probably half of the garrison in Jerusalem that are called upon to escort Paul uh, to uh, Caesarea. This was not a normal practice. And they even go by, by uh, nighttime so as to not to be seen and to be delivered over to this governor. Uh, you see what's happening here is that the tribune is using his authority, his ability, his power to control his military to really ensure that this problem of Paul is, is gotten rid of. He writes a letter to accompany the soldiers and, to, and Paul. And really, as we read this letter, you can see how it is that he's really only concerned about his maintaining his power and his reputation. Look at verse 26, this letter that he writes. He says, Claudius Lysias, to the excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. Anytime a, a letter starts off with a nice compliment, you know something else, you know, probably a big question or a problem is, is lying ahead. So verse 27, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the, change, uh, for, or the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of the law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. I think it's ironic. He's trying to make himself look good. He's reordering the events that took place to make himself seem more in control. He says that he was the one who uh, saw this Roman citizen in distress and came to save him. But really what took place was that uh, the tribune saw Paul being beaten up and actually arrested him, ordered his own guards to flog him until he realized he was a Roman citizen. He wants himself to seem like he was more in control and, and actually is doing what's necessary, but he, he's really just trying to get rid of Paul. He really only cares about keeping his reputation and his power intact, and that's really what's most important to him. Now, before we pass too much judgment on the Tribune and this leader and how he responded, I think if we think about ourselves and how we respond in moments of chaos or moments of instability, what is it that we go and reach for to bring us stability? What are the things that matter most to us in those instances? Do we reach for our, to protect our reputation, to keep our hold on our power, our sense of control? Well, I believe that this uh, tribune, well, he, he's grabbing a hold of his own authority and power and trying to preserve his reputation. But for followers of Christ, we have something better to take hold of something that we can grab a hold of that is not as fragile as money or friends or a sense of control. We have the promises of God to hang a tight to. The governor, upon reading the letter and asks Paul a question about where he's from, trying to determine if he falls within his jurisdiction, and agrees to hear out Paul's case, and here it is, Paul is imprisoned again. But here's what I want you to notice in this last portion of our text. Paul's situation is seems to be only intensifying. The plot against him grows. The number of guards and, and imprisonment seems to be only intensifying. The men, uh, the guards that are actually guarding him, don't care about Paul. They're not Christ followers. And yet God uses this Roman uh, garrison of soldiers to protect Paul. It's, it's what was meant 
for bad for Paul, that he is going to be guarded even more, uh, something that would seem bad for Paul uh, is actually the very thing that God uses to preserve his life. What this means is that God can redeem the suffering and injustice we experience for our good and his glory. God uses Paul's captors to make them uh, protect him. There's actually another really great example of this in the Bible, in the story and life of Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament was beaten by his brothers, imprisoned. Uh, It set off this entire series of events where he was sold into captivity. He was uh, mistreated and, and, and accused of wrongdoing. But somehow all of these events led him to a place of power in Egypt. And when a great famine came across the land and his brothers had to come begging for food and for protection, Joseph encounters them. And instead of seeking revenge against them, he says that what you intended for evil, God intended for good. What was done to Joseph to harm him and hurt him, God was able to use for good. It's passages like this today that remind us that our God can use the most terrible things that happen to us in life for good. That he is that good and that sovereign and that in control that he can redeem any situation we find ourselves in. Earlier this summer, I got together with my intentional Christian community that I'm a part of in Wicker Park, and we were just processing a little bit of the events that took place in the last year. And we, I actually had asked everyone to describe how they felt like they had changed over the last year. And a lot of us, we talked about how we've just become a lot more anxious, a lot quicker to anxiety than ever before. Anytime one of my kids coughs, I, I just get put into a spiral of, of worry and anxiety. It doesn't take much these days for, for me to become anxious and worried about what's happening. And really the layer beneath that is that I'm a lot quicker, it seems, to question God's word, to question God's promises and power. What I realize I need a lot more of these days is the reminder that God is a lot bigger and a lot better than I often believe. That God is a lot more in control than I sometimes uh, think he is. God was able to use even the worst of circumstances for Paul to bring about good. And I think that sometimes I need to be reminded that God can even work in whatever uh, unfortunate circumstances that I'm facing, that God can still use it for his good. When I begin to worry, when I begin to feel as if the world, the ground beneath me is crumbling, I can often begin to think that God is a small God, a God who's not in control. What I need is passages like this that, that push back against that wrong perception of God. You see, in this passage, God is seen as completely in control. Paul, the one, as I said, who seems most powerless is the one who seems most least threatened. The one in this passage who seems to be in least control is actually has the most certainty about his future. That's true for any follower of Christ. Anyone who is facing suffering can trust that God is the one who will bring stability to their life. If, if God is as sovereign and in control as this passage depicts, then maybe our expectations around how God will come to our aid might need to change. How as followers of Christ, we might need to change the, the way that we expect God to show up in our circumstances. Instead of calling into question God's power and promises, we might need to stand in anticipation for God to show up and work. The prophet Habakkuk, he lived in a time of instability and chaos. I love the way that the book of Habakkuk opens up. It's a prayer. He prays this. He says, O Lord, how long? 
Shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. I have heard echoes of Habakkuk's prayer in my own life. And in recent prayers, I have heard echoes of crying out to the Lord in this way. This last week, a seven-year-old young boy was shot a block away from my house. How long, O Lord, will justice go perverted and paralyzed? I have heard prayers from this very pulpit in the last few months, cries that echo the cry of Habakkuk. I think we should pray like Habakkuk. I think there's something right to lament and cry out to God. But I hope and I pray that each and every one of us might also stand ready for God to respond just like the prophet Habakkuk did. Later in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet says this. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. Holy Trinity Church, just as the prophet stood up in the midst of chaos and waited for the Lord to work, so too shall we. With bated breath, we shall look to the one who can bring stability when we can't see a way forward. Holy Trinity Church, I just want to give you these two reasons, these two surprising ways that God can bring stability to your life. To encourage you this morning that he can use the weakest of things to, bring, uh, to make you strong. He can use what even seems bad in your life for good for you. He is a superior source of stability than anything else in the world. But hear me on this. Stability might not come in the way that you expect. It might not look like what you imagined it would. It might not come in the shape and form that you hope it does. The surprise of the cross is that God brings stability in a surprising way. The cross, something that seems weak, something that seems bad for Christ, that is actually what God uses to bring stability in the world. It's the cross that the destabilizing powers of death and demons were defeated. Today, suffering servants of Christ can experience stability because our Savior, Christ himself, became a suffering servant. He left the stability of the throne to enter the chaos of our world for us. So may the love of Christ today, may the love of Christ steady you and help you be sustained and preserved as you suffer and as you press on and wait for the Lord to come to your aid. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and loving Father, we, we trust that you are far more in control than sometimes we believe. So, Father, I pray today that you would, you would remind us once again that in a world that is chaotic and unstable, that there is a safe place, a refuge to take. Father, remind us that Christ himself, the great sacrifice that he took, that he became like us. He became like us in our suffering, and he brought stability. He did something that we could not. He did more with so, so little. And so, Lord, I pray today that we would find ourselves steadied by the love of our Savior. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.